Hey everybody, thanks for checking out this episode of My First Sketch. I'm Josh Hyam. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, get it automatically. If you like the Stitcher app, you can find it there as well. It'd be really cool if you rate it five stars and leave a review on whatever platform you choose. You can like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash myfirstsketch. Follow along on Twitter at myfirstsketch. Head to myfirstsketch.com where I'll post any of the videos that we talk about on today's episode. Any questions, thoughts, recommendations, feel free to email me at josh at myfirstsketch.com and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. We continue our series highlighting performers from Sketchfest Seattle, which takes place on September 5th through the 8th and 12th through the 14th. Check out sketchfest.org for more information. Today's guest is Sarah McKinley, currently the creative force behind the one-person show Tragic Girl and the owner of the Pocket Theater in Seattle, Washington. Sarah's first sketch is called Ship Out of Luck. It's a parody of the film Titanic. So Sarah plays Rose and I play Jack, and then I'll give you all the visual information you need to know. So let's go to the sketch. Ship out of luck. Lights up. The Titanic is sinking. Rose DeWitt sits atop a raft large enough for two or three people center stage. Jack Dawson, freezing from the icy water, bobs downstage without a device, gasping for breath. Rose. Rose, I love you. I will always love you. And I you, Jack. I wish it didn't have to end this way. It's so sad watching the great ship plunge into the icy depths and not a sliver of happiness to be found in the dark waters. All hope is not lost. We can still be together, Rose. Jack, the unsinkable ship is sinking. What dramatic irony. And you have no flotation device? Oh, what heart-wrenching, emotionally manipulative Hollywood misfortune. Doesn't have to be this way. No, I'm pretty sure the boat is toast. Not the boat. Me. Oh, well, I'm also pretty sure you don't have a raft. No, I know I don't have a raft. I mean... If you could scoot over a little to the right, I may be able to fit on yours. Mine? Oh. Mmm. I don't think so. Why not? There's plenty of room. Let's just try it. Jack swims to the raft. Rose spreads out as wide as she can to take up as much space as possible. No, darling, there's no mu- there's no room. I take up too much space. Rose, my love, you're tiny. Surely you can make room for me, your one true love. And Rose spreads out further. You're too fat. You'll never fit. I'm not fat. You are. Tubby McTubtub. Rose, what's come over you? Don't you love me? He puts his hand on the edge of the raft and Rose slaps it away. Ow! I mean, what if you come on and the raft tips, plunging us both into death and darkness? Isn't it comforting knowing that one of us will survive this tragedy, darling Jack? Of course I want you to live. But isn't it best we both make it out of this and live a life of love and ecstasy together in America? I really think there's room for more than just you. A cat meows. Meow. What was that? Oh, nothing. Yeah, I'm just tired, Jack. Losing the love of your life to inevitable death is really exhausting. Meow. 
Is that a cat? What? No. A person dressed as a cat with a tiny life jacket climbs over Rose, purrs and cuddles next to her. That's a cat. Well, I couldn't leave it to die, Jack. You have room for a cat, but not me? Are you suggesting I let Jack, too, suffer a slow, painful hypothermic death? Jack, too? That's the cat's name. He has your eyes. I thought it would be a nice way to remember you after, well, you know. But Rose, I love you. It doesn't have to be this way. I don't have to die here. I... Shh. Don't speak. I can hardly bear it. What's that shiny thing behind you? Hmm? That, that's a chandelier. God, it's the one from the Grand Ballroom. Rose! Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Why do you have that? My home in America, my new one, is so boring. I wanted to update my living room with the latest English interior decorating. Rose, listen to me. If you throw the chandelier overboard, you may be able to save my life. Rose weighs her options, looking between Jack and the chandelier. But Jack, it's so... chic. I thought you loved me. What about everything we've been through? What about the intimacy of sketching your bare breasts? I mean, you're not the first artist to see my tits. I mean, I have a thing for the brooding poor ones with hope for a new life in America. Ugh, the last fortunate turned me on so bad. Jack shivers. Rose pulls out knitting needles and yarn. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go knit a cardigan for Jack, too. He looks a little chilly to me. Jack grabs the edge of the raft, looks into Rose's eyes and pleading. Rose... If you ever loved me, you'll let me on that raft. Oh, Jack, don't make this harder than it already is. Rose. Jack! Rose pulls a boombox from behind her and sets it on the edge of the raft. I'll never forget you. Rose presses play, and Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On begins to play softly. What is... That's not historically accurate. Stereos? Shh. Rose, this is ridiculous. Move over. I'm coming aboard. Wait. Take these. Rose pulls out a pair of inflated child's water wings from behind her and gives them to Jack. These won't do anything. Goodbye, Jack. Rose turns up the music and begins to sing along. Damn it, Rose. My heart will go on. I'll always keep the necklace you gave me. But she, uh, she shows the heart of the ocean necklace around her neck. The spleen of the puddle. Ocean. Heart of the ocean. Whatever. A very attractive man without a flotation device drifts near Rose's raft. Rose notices him immediately. Hey, handsome. You looking for a lift? Goodness, how generous. Thank you. Mm. Rose pulls the man up onto her raft. Hey! My, how beautiful you are. You have such nice breasts. I would love to draw them sometime. Rose pauses the stereo, rips off the heart of the ocean, and drops it into the water. She reaches behind her and pulls out a bottle of champagne and two champagne flutes. Care for some champagne? Oh, yes. Rose, for the love of God, you clearly had space for me and instead filled it with this man. I plan to fill many spaces with this man. hey Rose high-fives the man. Jack, furious, tries to climb up on, onto the raft. Rose screams. They struggle. Rose succeeds in pushing Jack off. Goodbye, Jack. Our love will never drown, even if you do. 
Jack drips away off stage. Rose turns to the man and pours him a glass of champagne. They drink. This is so nice. Just the two of us? Ugh, I can't wait to begin our new life together in America with this gorgeous chandelier. Mmm, and Jack too. Darling, I'm yours. A very attractive woman drafts towards the raft. The man notices immediately. Hello, beautiful. Need a bride? Goodness, how generous. Thank you. My darling Rose, there's not enough room for the three of us. Forgive me. The man pushes Rose off the raft. She screams and drifts off stage. The man pulls the woman onto the raft. Champagne. Mm, don't mind if I do. Why? Jack what two a purrs and, oh, Jack two purrs and lights out. Hey, Sarah. Hello. All right. So tell me about this Titanic sketch called Ship Out of Luck. Oh, God. Uh, so I wrote this sketch when I was 20. I think it was my first semester of my junior year in college. Uh, I had been on the sketch team in college for a couple of years, and I had tried to write a little bit, but this was the first time that I felt like I wrote something that actually <laughs> made sense. It had a sort of a game and had something going on. Um, in retrospect, uh, there's some like not great stuff. Like there's like a really fat phobic joke, which is gross. So sorry about that. Yeah, you're young. It's um, your college had a sketch team. Yeah, yeah, we did. It was called Ubiquitous They. And where was this? Uh, this was in Tacoma, Washington. So it's just about an yeah. hour and a half south of Seattle. Um, I'm always. Uh, one of the recurring themes of this podcast is me being incredibly jealous of people that had sketch teams in college. Oh yeah, because it was I something was something lucky. that I wish I had, like I had. Um, but so you were a member of the sketch team, so I, I assume you were acting more than like, and then you and then you decide to write a sketch. Yeah, I think it was uh, a confidence thing for sure. Uh, it was a super like male-dominated group in the beginning. Um, it's a much better team now from what I know of them. They seem a lot cooler than we were. Um, <laughs> 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 um, but early on, it was a really duty group. Um, and Okay, so I actually have a question for you. Does anyone actually ever share their very first sketch they ever wrote? Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. I wondered if... Sorry, I feel silly. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wondered if it was like a thing of like, oh, I can't share like my very first ever because that one is like so horrible. Because I had one that I wrote even earlier, but like I wouldn't even like register it as a sketch, honestly. <laughs> um, that, that Yeah, that's, um, you know, interpretation comes into like, you know, depending on length, depending on how funny it actually is trying to be like, you right. know, like that's how... It depends on, you know, I leave it entirely up to the guests of what they actually want to call their first sketch. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, hmm, I guess I was too vain to share my very first, which I think I wrote my first year of college. <laughs> That's fine. Was uh, this one ever performed? It was, yeah. When I was digging through my old hard drive, I actually found a picture of the people who performed it. Um, performing so, it. So you didn't do it? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I okay. wrote it. The way that our college sketch team worked is that people would write sketches and we'd all uh, give each other notes uh, and then we'd mm -hmm. uh, punch up the drafts and then we'd put them up. Uh, so maybe we'd write 25 sketches or so over a semester and we'd 
pick, I don't know, like 12 or 15. And then there was a team of directors who were people who had been in the group for at least a semester. And then they would cast the sketches and then we, they would direct them and we'd put the sketch, the sketches up in a show at the end of the semester. Okay, nice. Um, what, what drew you to the college sketch team? Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes I feel embarrassed because I feel like a lot of comedians have like a great origin story. They're like, oh, I watched In Living Color my whole life or like, oh, I have, I've like have all these like influences and stuff. Um, and to be honest, I was just like a nerdy <laughs> theater kid uh, all through mm. middle school and high school. Um, and I always liked comedy, but I it was never something I thought I could actually do. Um, and that could be like internalized misogyny. It could be like a lot of things, right? But I got to school and I auditioned for a couple plays and I didn't get in. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll find something else to do. And then I saw a flyer that the improv and sketch teams are having auditions. So I auditioned for those and I got on and I was like, oh, shit, I really like this. And I like this more than what I was doing. And so I sort of tripped and fell into it. Um, and now I don't do theater anymore. I only do comedy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) all right. So you were theater. Oh, that's, I mean, that's not as uncommon a story as you think it is. Oh, good. Um, (laughs) at least in, you know, in my experience of doing this. So what was your, um, so you were a theater kid growing up basically. Uh, what, like, I always, I'm always curious. Did you have like a favorite role in your theater kid time? Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) Um, oh, this is so cliche. Uh, I played Lady Macbeth in my junior year of high school. And I remember being like, oh, shit, I really like acting because like before I sort of did it for fun. And then when I did that, I was like, oh, I this is something I actually want to keep doing and something clicked for me. Um, I can tell you about my like weirdest role. Yeah, go for it. Sure. So it was my sophomore year of high school and they had they did Superman the musical which just like really shouldn't exist. Like if you think that like musicals now are like sort of off the rails with like Mean Girls and SpongeBob and all that shit, like Superman the musical came out in like the 1930s and is just like a shit okay. show. <laughs> okay. I, I remember hearing about a Superman musical, but I couldn't remember if it was in response to the Christopher Reeve movies of the 70s or if it was that like just originally from the, the comics back in the you know, early, early days of it. Yeah, it's from the original comics. It's a total mess. Um, So they have uh, these characters who are sort of these like circus performers. Um, And the original script, it's super racist. They're called the Flying Lings. And it's just like a bunch of like stereotypes and shit. But the way that the director at my high school uh, tried to solve that problem was he made them Canadian. So I was one of those people. And we were like these weird like circus traveling Canadian circus performers. And we had the cheer team uh, come and teach us like cheer stuff. Uh, which felt so silly because we're like these nerdy like bumbling like theater (laughs) kids and then we have the like cheer team coming and trying to teach us stunts and it's just oh (laughs) it was really silly (laughs) Uh, I mean you you mentioned that your backstory doesn't include watching a living color but were you into any comedy growing up like what were you a fan of sure um Uh, I watched Whose Line Is It Anyway with my mom, and I watched Saturday Night Live with my mom. Um, But my parents, uh, growing up, didn't let me watch a lot of stuff. I had a sort of, like, uh, restricted, like, 
upbringing. So there are a ton of rated R movies mm. that I like still haven't seen. Like I've never seen the matrix and I probably never will. Um, my mom will let me now, but um, I've just never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I, I fell asleep during the matrix. So don't worry. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. There are yeah. some things in like Forrest Gump. There's just like some things I feel like I don't need to see. I like understand the feeling of them and that's probably enough. Um, <laughs> um, but I watch a lot more comedy now, obviously. Um, I love Amy Sedaris. I love Maria Bamford. Um, mm. Key and Peele. Um, you mentioned watching Saturday Night Live with your mom, and I'm always curious. Like, do you, uh, who who would be your favorite SNL cast member? Oh God, my <laughs> you you ask really great questions, and I uh, sometimes I feel like I'm not, uh, gosh, like knowledgeable enough, or not nerdy enough, or like the opposite, or like not cool enough for other comedians. So my answer, uh, this person isn't even a cast member, but my favorite. Uh, given the era that I was watching when I was in high school, as was whenever Justin Timberlake would guest star. Those were okay. always my favorite episodes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I remember Dick in a Box coming out and just like, and like everyone like singing it, singing along with my friends and like everybody's like making like, like YouTube like parodies and things of Dick in a Box and it's already like a sketch. No one needs to do this, but like everyone's doing it. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, I... You like, you're definitely not the first person to mention a host. So like, oh, yeah. a, a recurring host. So I mean, yeah, it's totally fine. Um, I'll allow it. <laughs> okay, uh, good. You won't kick me off right now. <laughs> We're like 20 minutes in. You're no, like, like <laughs> no, it, it's it's interesting because like, you know, everyone. There's a lot of people that don't realize that Steve Martin wasn't a cast member because he hosted so much in the 70s, and like, just when you think of of SNL clips from the seventies in that early age, there's generally a good chance that Steve Martin's going to be in one of them. Like if you did like a best of that time period, he would show up like once or twice. So like people like, and, and Timberlake's done it four or five times by now. Right. Like, yeah, I'm sure. I feel, yeah, I don't, I don't know if he does it anymore, but um... <laughs> I'm sure he'll show up yeah, eventually. I don't watch it anymore. I'm sure when the new album drops, he'll, he'll be around. Oh, God. <laughs> um but yeah like his sh- like he's one of those guys that's he's one of those hosts that seems to be all in and game for anything that they're gonna do like yeah it takes it takes someone that's like fully self-aware and you know knows comedy to do like dig in the box mother lover yeah golden rule like you know to totally like throw yourself into that like so I'm okay with yeah, that's fine. Okay, good. I'm glad you like that. <laughs> <laughs> and if someone were to ask me who my favorite uh, cast member is now, um, I feel like everyone would say Kate McKinnon. But as far as like hosts, like when Donald Glover did an episode and like helped write an episode, like that was the best it's been in God like a decade, I'm sure. But yeah, he was he was really strong, but I fully expected him to be really good at yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> because he's when they announced, it, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so you mentioned that like you know, being a theater kid and, you know, college theater is a, a weird prospect to me. Mm-hmm. Cause like, I, I, you know, I wasn't in the college theater program, but I had a bunch of friends in it and it always seemed like everything was way more serious than I feel like it needed to be. Oh, that's very true. Like, you know, like the theater kids were like, you know, Oh, like, you know, you know full on artiste, <laughs> you know, all those stereotypes are true. Uh, so when you walk into 
the improv and sketch team at college? Like, what was the difference for you then? Oh, sure. Yeah, I can talk about that. Um, everyone's so much more fun. And everyone is like people that I'd actually want to hang out with and like, spend a ton of time with. Um, I think uh, when I first got on, though, I took it like way too seriously. Like I took my like, theater kid background and totally mapped that on to doing improv and sketch. And so I'd like, be the first to have my lines memorized and just like shit like that you know like mm-hmm. like even like simple things like I bring a pencil to a rehearsal and like everyone's like digging through their backpacks like you know and everyone's like 10 minutes late and like maybe a little high uh and so I feel like it took me a while to like loosen up and like let myself not be like perfect theater nerd <laughs> Mm. Um, oh god we're talking so much about uh, uh past stuff i feel embarrassed i just like myself so much more now than i did in college <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there. we have to get we have to establish a base first yeah yeah um, i'll have to bring this to my therapist <laughs> <laughs> um so okay so after college like I, I assume you spend the rest of your time in college with this team yeah like as like one of your primary uh extracurriculars or however you want to call it um so what's next after college like what where do you take that first step of comedy outside the comfort of a college setting sure um so i graduated college in 2014 um and i've never been someone who's particularly graceful through change and i just remember being so sad and it just broke my fucking heart that all these funny people that i loved uh wouldn't be living within a 10 minute walk of me anymore so i really struggled with that um <laughs> Uh, I actually, when I was in college, I still studied theater. Uh, I still thought it was something I wanted to do. I was never particularly happy doing it, but it was what I had always done. So I did it anyway. Um, and I thought that I wanted to direct plays for a living. Um, and I did that for my senior thesis and I learned through the process that I hate directing plays. Um, <laughs> but I applied to a bunch of directing internships all over the country anyway. Um, cause I thought that it was selfish if I wanted to be an actor. I didn't think if it was selfish if anybody else did, but I thought it was selfish for me for some reason. So thank God hmm. I didn't get any internship, like any directing internship. Thank God. Um, so I just followed one of my friends up to Seattle, uh, my best friend, Emily, uh, we did comedy together all through college and we were roommates and she had an internship at a children's theater. So I just followed her. Uh, so I got to the city and I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I started going to improv shows and just talking to improvisers after, and I met somebody who was starting up the theater that I now run the pocket theater. Uh, he was had just found the space and he was running weekly uh, sketch comedy writing workshops. And I ran into him and I was like, oh, you're the person, you're the dude who's doing the thing. Uh, how do how do I do comedy here? And he invited me to start going to the workshops. So I started going and learning how to write better, um, and writing more mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, at the time, uh, there was somebody, Matt Olson, who was running a sketch comedy open mic every month so people could come in and play and hang out and so I started doing that and then I formed a team yeah how did you know about uh these improv shows that you would go to like how did you find oh, them just online <laughs> um, I just, just just online I was like where's Seattle improv um and I knew I wanted to see long form improv which was harder to find in Seattle at the time now it's now it's starting to be everywhere but at the time it was a lot of short mm-hmm. form so I'd google long form improv and like two things come up and so that's how you know what to go to <laughs> 
So your first team in Seattle. Tell me about sure. them. Sure. <laughs> uh, uh, they're all sweethearts and we're all still really good friends. Uh, my first sketch team, uh, there was a program in Seattle at the time run by the founder of the theater, Clayton, uh, where he would find comedians all over the city or theater people or whoever and boy band them together uh, teach them how to write sketch and take them through the process the, of producing a show, help them produce their first show, and then let them fly. Uh, and those teams have like mm. gone on to do other shows and festivals and things like that. So I was part of that program, uh, the Sketch Summit is what it was called. So my first team um, was a group of total ragtag experimental sweethearts. Um, we were called Part Plant. Uh, which is not a good name uh, because whenever I say it, people say what part plant. And I think if someone asks you what after your team name, it's probably not a good name. Um, (laughs) Wait, it's part Part plant. plant. Yep. (laughs) Like, like part man, part, like part human part. Like, like uh, yeah, like succulent or (laughs) whatever your favorite plant is. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, where does that name come from? Sure. So we noticed as we were writing together, we were writing a lot of nature inspired sort of stuff. Um, we were writing okay. a lot of like absurdist, like anthropomorphic, uh, like plants and animals sort of stuff. That was a recurring thing that kept coming up. And Clayton, uh, the person running the program, had us pick our name after like four to six weeks of working together before we really knew who we were because you just kind of have to. Uh, so we picked that name. And I don't think it's what we would have picked if we... Uh, had waited a little longer but we had a a list we had a list of different names and the one that I like really stand by and I wish we should have like I wish we could have gone with was fuck wolf like yeah (laughs) fuck wolf I think is a great name but it also didn't suit us but (laughs) I I also feel that that's gonna be hard to advertise yeah right you really can't put that on a poster no you can't I feel Facebook has all kinds of restrictions Um, yeah yeah my show tragic girl it used to be called tragic bitch but as I was like starting to develop it and wanting to do more marketing stuff I realized it wasn't gonna work so I ended up renaming it Mm. yeah it's okay. Yeah, sometimes advertising, you know, creates limitations mm-hmm. to what you actually want the things to do. What? So where does Tragic Girl come into this then? Yeah. Um, are you are you asking for like how I went from like doing part plant to Tragic Girl or like? Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah, I can talk about that. Um, so I was doing a comedy with part plant and we're all uh uh, I think total sweethearts, but also really opinionated people um, who wanted a. we all wanted like a say in everything. Um, so we realized we were like sort of fighting about every decision, which is so silly. Um, I have a friend in comedy who says whoever cares more is right, which I think is just a great rule to live by is whoever cares more is right. Um, uh, so we uh, eventually stopped working together. We did a last show together and that was really nice. Um, and then I started working uh, with my partner, uh, Matt. Uh, we have a duo called SMAT, S-M-A-T, SMAT. Uh, and we mm-hmm. do like absurdist comedy uh, where we have our audience boo us and throw radishes at us uh, during the course of the show. And we do like disgusting, like sort of body horror comedy. Um, okay. And we, we started doing that. Um, I just wanted to work with people who had been doing sketch longer than I was because I really wanted to learn from people who I perceived to be uh, better writers than me. And I feel like I learned a lot in that duo and I still work with him. Um, and then I really wanted to get into solo work because I wanted to develop my voice and figure out who, who am I and what really makes me laugh. Uh, and that's how I got to Tragic Girl. 
so the premise of Tragic Girl is that she's sort of this like uh, frustrating, like self-involved, attention-seeking person uh, who sort of uh, <laughs> uh, plays out her life really publicly and really dramatically uh, in front of the world in public places. And this totally comes from my like tragic theater kid background, like in the way that theater kids are sort of like attention-seeking and high drama. You were talking about like college theater, like all the stereotypes sort of being true. So this was me mm. um, exploring that and also exploring uh, characters who are in that vein. Um, it's always been really fun for me to uh, notice someone out in the world with an unusual pattern of behavior and start to pick apart what that is and what the pattern is and turn that into comedy. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a part of me that it's going to sound a little reductive and I don't mean to, um, but you mentioned like playing on your theater kid background <laughs> and of like the idea that comedy trope of like the insufferable one person show. Oh, yeah. Like, and generally, like, if, like, I couldn't think of something I'd want to do less than go to someone's, like, true dramatic one-person show. But when when you add the comedy flair to it, it definitely sounds better (laughs) than, like, a drama version of it. Right. Is that, like, at all, are you coming from that angle? of that one person, you know, show like kind of thing. That's a good question. Um, I would say that there could totally be other characters on stage with me. Like I don't play multiple characters throughout the course of the show. Cause I think that's sort of insufferable too, to watch somebody like pretend to play multiple characters or, or like uh, at once and like not super well. Right. Like that's another trope of the one person show. <laughs> Like stepping like back to the left and right and like having a conversation with yourself like oh god it's just ma- maybe like putting on a baseball cap for the one right 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 um yeah I hear what you're saying yeah I think one person shows can be totally insufferable and like self involved um, and I think people get really wrapped up into like their feelings of like what doing the show means to them rather than actually putting on a good funny show. And I think a pitfall that a lot of people fall into is they don't workshop any of it and they don't process any of their feelings. Like, I feel like I've seen so many one person shows where people have a ton of like unprocessed trauma or sadness or whatever. And like you see this with stand up too, where they're just like dumping their feelings onto an audience. And all of a sudden, everybody in the crowd is like that person's therapist. And it's like impossible Mm. to watch. Um, So with that, I would say uh, I did a lot of like workshopping this material like over the course of like a couple of years. And I had sketches that I had already written uh, that were different characters and plugged them into a framing device of this uh, of somebody on a bus who's like doing like attention seeking behavior. My show takes place on public transportation on the subway or whatever. And it's someone who is like sort of on the subway and uh, wanting attention and making it everyone else's problem. Okay. That because I mean I mean you say that and I just you know think of my experience on public transportation and you know face down eyes down <laughs> trying not to pay attention to those people totally totally that um so so what can an, an audience expect from a tragic girl sketch show. I would say that a lot of it is really uh, interactive. Um, I don't want to say I like 
bully an audience, but there is like a moment. Oh, that sounded really bad. <laughs> uh, there is a moment in the show um, where I'm playing like a 1940s war wife who's doing like nonsense rituals to win the war. Uh, and one of those things mm. is like uh, singing a song on the piano that's just about pork. It's not about anything. It's literally about pork. Um, and another ritual is that we've been given a stick of butter as a ration. And so I take a big bite out of the piece of butter and pass it around to the audience and try to get everybody in the audience to take a bite out of the piece of butter to win the war, uh, things like that. So, um, I tend to like play with people directly during the show. Um, Mm -hmm. and since it is a sort of tragic character that's like seeking attention, I make the audience more part of that is what I would say. Um, it's also pretty gross, okay. like uh, getting people to eat a stick of butter. Uh, there's another sketch uh, it's where I play a penny press. Uh, like, you know, those penny presses where you go to like on vacation to a beach town and they have those penny press machines. Like put the 51 cents in uh-huh. and it. And you crank it. And it like, you know, yeah, okay. Totally. Yeah, yeah. So I have a sketch in the show where uh, I'm a conductor on a train who is also a penny press machine. And the premise is I've stopped the train and we won't move again until someone presses a penny inside my body. And so I wait for someone in the audience to give me a penny and then I take it and I put it in my butt and I have them crank my <laughs> arm. And then in my mouth the whole time, there's been a pressed penny um, and I spit out that pressed penny and give it to them. So I would say like gross things like that. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that you run Pocket now. Yeah, I do. All right, let's talk about. I think you're one of the first people that I've talked to that actually like runs a theater of their own. Yeah, sure. Or at least you know is the major the. So let's talk about Pocket because one of the like, as I was reaching out to different people to try to figure out who to talk to on this, you you came up like, I've already talked to a couple people. Um, mentioning that they perform at Pocket and everything. So, how do you? Uh, I'm going to say jokingly, but you know it probably isn't true this way. But like, how do you like rise to the throne? Sure. Of Pocket Theater. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy to talk about that. Um. So, like I said, I graduated in 2014 and moved up to Seattle and met Clayton, who was the founder then, and he had just opened up the space. And the whole like ethos of the Pocket Theater is to break down barriers to entry for people who would perform, but maybe necessarily wouldn't have the resources, time or education or what, what have you, and that nobody should have to pay to perform. So I started hanging out and going to a writer's room that he was running and, uh, and I started volunteering there too. So I was running the bar and I was hosting shows. It was a great way to see a ton of improv and sketch shows and meet a lot of people and learn a lot. Um, and I was working shitty barista jobs, like a lot of entertainers. Um, and I was like really getting frustrated with working uh, my barista jobs. And I was having a great time volunteering at the theater. And so I talked to Clayton and I said, hey, you know, I think I'm going to be looking for other work. Um, and do you know people who write for a living? So I was thinking about like getting into writing copy and stuff like that, like a lot of folks do. Um, and he called me one day and he said, Hey, you know, uh, you said you were looking for some more work. Uh, I kind of need help with the administrative side of things as the theater's growing. And this was in early 2016. And so he asked me if I'd be interested in doing some assistant managing sort of stuff. So I met with him and he sort of talked me through the whole process of from start to finish what he does whenever someone comes to him and pitches a show. And so I learned all of the administrative work of that. And I was doing that for about eight months. And then he 
uh, offered me a management position. So at that, so that meant booking shows, meeting with artists. Um, it's my problem if the toilet's dirty, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, <laughs> just taking managing the the physical space while he did like the boring tax stuff, right? Um, Mm. And then uh, in fall of 2018, no, sorry, fall of 2017, uh, his longtime girlfriend got a job in Denver. Um, His girlfriend, Sophie, they've been together for like 10 years. Uh, She's a midwife. And so he decided to move with her. And so he said, you know, I can't really run the theater while I'm in Denver. Uh, Do you want to take over the theater? And I'm 25 at the time. And I'm just like, uh... Uh, do I want to be a small business owner? Oh, uh, well, it's better than being a barista, I guess. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I turned into like Beavis and Butthead for a minute. Uh, and then I was like, okay, sure. Um, you know, it's like, uh, like, if I'm honest, it's not my dream to to run a theater and like be like an arts administrator, but I've really liked doing it. And I liked the work that I was doing. And I still do. And I love uh, helping other artists and I'm passionate about knocking down barriers to entry. So I was like, yeah, you know what? Like, fuck it, let's do it. <laughs> um, and he sold me the business for a dollar, uh, which is absurd, what? which is completely absurd. And I don't know anyone else who has like ever been in this sort of position uh, anywhere in terms of like purchasing a business or like gaining a position of like leadership. And like, I, I don't take that lightly. And I know that like nobody uh, else has like had an opportunity like this. And I'm very grateful. Uh, so with that, I took over officially January 1st, 2018. And I, I was still a barista. I've still been a barista and like a temp uh, person like on and off. Um, but I've been running mm. it ever since. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, and like, it, but it also confirms one of my theories of like, I forget what famous wise person said this, but like half the battle is showing up, like you putting in the effort to like be around and like volunteering and, you know, running bar and all that stuff. And then that gets you into assistant managing, like all that stuff. Like I'm, I'm sure there are plenty, but like now that you are running the theater and you'll want to perform what are some of the pitfalls that you've come into as being the person in charge of the space? As much as like everything is my joy, everything is also my problem. <laughs> um, so whenever something breaks, it's my job to like come in and fix it. Um, and I've been on tour, like at, like comedy festivals and things, and I'll get a call. I, I got a call recently that the key uh, to the back door broke off in the lock. And I was like, oh shit, well, I'm out of town. So I have to figure out like how to, how to do that and like deal with all that stuff. So I'd say like logistical, um, and like time wise, for sure, um, because the space always has to be my first priority because there's nobody else for it to be their first priority. And it shouldn't be, you know, like uh, I'm the person with mm-hmm. like, like who, who benefits from it by owning it. And so really, it should be like my responsibility to deal with it when shit hits the fan. Um, so I'd say, uh, that always having to take a front seat can be challenging though. There are also wonderful people. Like our volunteers are incredible, um, just really good people. And I've felt comfortable going out of town because I know that they're such community minded people 
who I, I trust completely. Um, I would say a lot of my stressors are like trusted just by, or alleviated just by trusting people. Like uh, a lot of people, like this is silly and maybe um, a lot of people like have the code to the back door. Like I tell people, like, I trust you to like, not like mess things up. Like I trust that people are going to like do the right thing and like uh, do their best and like people make mistakes and that's fine. Um, I feel like I've gotten a lot of relief by trusting people. Um, though I guess another thing I would say a pitfall is uh, when I was when I was first starting to hang out, I felt like I was really like uh, established myself in the in the Seattle comedy scene, and as someone who's part of that, and being a person in a position of leadership and power means that my role is sort of different. Uh, because with power comes, unfortunately, a lot of people abuse their power, and I never want to be someone who does that, and I never want to be someone who makes people feel uncomfortable or, like, icky, and so I think the way that uh, I carry myself, like, is a little bit different because people perceive me, and they're right, uh, that I'm in a position of power. So I guess I miss just, like, being part of the game. <laughs> As you've been on tour, have you found differences in the uh, different audiences. Yeah, that yeah, for. definitely. Um, with my absurdist duo, where we have people boo us and throw radishes, and I do a strip tease as a baby. Um, I wear like a little diaper and pasties. Like one's a pacifier and one's a teddy bear, uh, and I do a strip tease to wheels on the bus. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say that Chicago, when I did Chicago Sketchfest, like they uh, weren't super on board. Like I think it was a little too weird for them. Um, and also, I think a lot of people in Chicago are like doing like sort of more commercial stuff because they're trying to get on SNL. A lot of them, you know. Um, and I would say Portland yeah. was like so game and like so on board and so ready, um, and we're like more enthusiastic than like Seattle audiences. Um, I would say that Seattle audiences are like ready to get weird and like sort of get on board with absurdist sort of stuff. And they like, uh, you you mentioned Seattle being like a pretty liberal city and like a pretty like liberal state. And I'd say that's like true enough. I'd say a lot of it is like people liking to think that they're more liberal than they are. And unfortunately, a lot of white people being passive and thinking that they're like not racist, like sort of like shit like that. Uh, I guess that's just like a, just like a side comment about mm. Seattle. Um, <laughs> uh, but with that, I would say that Seattle's like a little bit quieter and a little bit like more passive. Also, I think uh, sometimes in Seattle you'll get polite laughs about things like even if people don't like something like uh, people in Seattle don't want to shake things up <laughs> and so you'll get a little like haha even if people like aren't really there for it um, and I did the show in New York recently I did it at the pit um, and something I noticed there is like oh god there's none of that like of course like New Yorkers are like not going to give you anything you don't deserve which I appreciate um, and it felt like I had yeah. to work harder and like be more present and like be more on my game than I'd have to be in Seattle. Um, in Montreal, I felt like uh, people were really like there for it and really like ready to like get weird and get on board. But it was also during Montreal Sketchfest and the team that I was paired with um, mm -hmm. was like a college student team. So there were a lot of like parents in the audience who like weren't super there for baby striptease, which, you know, whatever. <laughs> were, were they Montreal local? Yeah, they were. Or, yeah, like, how do you navigate, um, like, going to a festival? Like, I mean, you mentioned, you know, Chicago and, and Montreal being maybe not the best responses for you. Like, how do you just, you know, continue on with that? 
Um, I think that's honestly like a, my answer would be that's something I'm still learning. Um, and I think with my show Tragic Girl, uh, what I've learned from my absurdist duo that was harder to play in Chicago and to some extent in Montreal, I would say like overall Montreal uh, uh, had a good time with us, but there was like a group of parents, you know, who didn't. Um, so I guess I would say is uh, learning to read sort of the energy of the room. And especially if I'm going on after another team that's like a little bit more commercial or a little bit like less gross than me, uh, then I feel like I I have to work (laughs) harder to get them uh, on board and get them trusting me and that they feel like they're part of the thing and not like I'm doing it at them. Um, It's something that I've been working on. And with Tragic Girl, uh, the way that I've gone about uh, making it more like approachable and like a little bit clearer is when I when I first wrote Tragic Girl, I didn't ever intend for it to be Tragic Girl. I just had these sketches. So I had this sketch where someone puts a penny in their butt and I have someone who makes people eat a stick of butter. And I have someone who's like an audience member who like can't help but make a play about her. And she pulls down her pants like during the show for like attention. And I like had all these characters and I was trying to figure out how to string them together and I realized they were all sort of attention-seeking characters and so I got to thinking about like well okay I'm a really absurd person and like I like that about myself and my comedy but how do I get people on board with me and so I structure the show in such a way that it gets like more bizarre over time and also the framing device sort of the through line is uh, easier for people to connect with like everyone's been on a bus and noticed somebody who's behaving in a really like bizarre attention-seeking way and everyone knows attention-seeking people so I take that and I use that to help guide the audience through my more absurd stuff. So I'm not just like throwing sticks of butter at them, right? <laughs> so we've talked about you know, uh, part plant, smat, tragic girl, and running a theater. It, did we skip over anything in your history that is like a big moment for you? Gosh, uh, I, I took a couple years off of doing a lot of comedy. I don't know if that's interesting to to address like after Mm -hmm. college why yeah I took a couple years off uh specifically off of improv and to some extent off of sketch uh the reason that I did that uh I had an improv show where I totally uh, I didn't bomb as hard as I thought I did I don't think it was just like a not great improv show and I remember I performed at the pocket and I remember Uh, My teammates were going out into the lobby and I just went to the back on the porch and just like cried. And I was like, oh, my God, I feel so embarrassed. You know, like everyone like has those shows. Uh, But I realized that it was like every time I bombed, I was getting really upset. And I realized that I was putting too much of my self-worth into doing comedy. And so I decided uh, I was in therapy at the time. And like, uh, I think I think therapy is like so wonderful and like everyone should have access to it. Uh, And so with that, I was lucky enough to have access to it. So I decided to put more focus into the self-worth work that I was doing in therapy and really healing myself so that I could show up fully present to comedy and that I was uh, using it as something that gives me joy and not using it as something that gives me worth. Uh, And I'm really glad I did that. I was still writing sketch during that time, but it was from like 2016 uh, to uh, early 2018. I just took like a year and a half or two years off of improv and to some extent off of sketch to focus more on becoming a healthier person. And honestly, it was the best thing I did for myself. And I feel like now I can show up to comedy in such a more present way. And I know who I am and I like myself. And I think that makes for better comedy. But even in that time, you were still like around the theater, like, 
helping out and working yeah I was yeah I was so I was like still seeing a lot of comedy and still being around it but I was just at a point where I realized it wasn't healthy for me to be doing a lot of performing so I took some time off and I'm really glad I did yeah I find like I find that interesting um how you said of taking joy from it not worth like like that's like a a really interesting epiphany to me um I don't think I've ever heard someone say it that way. And I like it. <laughs> wow, you're going to be a big gonna head. Yeah, it. you're going like... to be a big head about this, but yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's going to segue into like my normal final questions as I do get try to get a little deep of like, um, so what have you learned from doing comedy? Like either, and I, I mean this either on the existential level or just as like a, tr- a trick of the trade, something that you would pass on to a, f- a, a new writer? Sure. So I have, uh, I would say for new writers, uh, something that I learned about myself is that I write better when I'm not like sitting down clicky clacky at a keyboard. Like a lot of people write that way and that's great. And a lot of writers rooms are built that way. And I would say if it doesn't serve you to sit down at a keyboard, then like get up and move your body, like get in front of a mirror and like test out characters like alone in your room uh, or like improvise with other people. I would say there isn't uh, only one way to write sketch. And if your brain doesn't work in the way of staring at a computer screen then don't try to make your brain work in that way is what I would say to new writers um and as far as what I've learned from comedy uh like existentially I would say like uh learning to accept things about myself that I don't necessarily love and learning to play with that and be playful with other people um I feel like my best friendships have come out of comedy friendships and I've just learned so much about other people and learned to uh, love a lot of things about other people and get to know them really deeply. And I'm really grateful for that. And to get to know people's sense of play, I guess. I feel like uh, people aren't super playful with each other in the day-to-day. Like, I don't like, like, people do, like, office bullshit, you know, like, pretend jokes where you're just, like, in a Kathy cartoon. You're not even being yourself. You're just, like, being, like, what you think, like, office life is kind of jokes. Um, And I love uh, being around people when they're at their most playful. Yeah, it is. Yeah. More playful is is definitely better than the Kathy and Dilbert comics (laughs) of the world. (laughs) Uh, and then finally, um, I mean, you mentioned growing up as a theater kid, going to theater, like, you know, majoring in theater, graduating as a theater kid, like wanting to direct and then finding because wanting to direct because you thought it'd be selfish to be an actor mm-hmm. going to Seattle and eventually becoming uh, the owner of a comedy space in a really short amount of time. As you as you make that transition at, from a theater person, and that's a weird sure. way of saying it, as a theater person to a comedy person, why has it become comedy? How you want to spend your life? Yeah, um, I guess there are, there are a few reasons. Um, I could give you my most serious reason. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple yeah, reasons. Go for so, it. Uh, my like really simple reason is like, it's so much fucking fun. Like who likes to sit in a dark (laughs) room for six hours a night, like Monday through Friday after work, like rehearsing something that someone else wrote that you don't have a lot of agency in. 
like it's so fucking boring like I don't know how I did it for so long and like good for people who do it if they have that attention span but oh my god you get to you get to be <laughs> playful and you get to create with other people and if something isn't working you can just change it in the room something I hated about theater is that with a play if you don't like the line you still have to say it because somebody says so and you're paying rights and like burr, 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 burr. Uh, <laughs> and I like comedy because you don't have to ask anybody uh, to do the thing that you want to do uh, that's something that I love about comedy. It's just like so much more fun. Um, and I feel like the relationships that I've developed over time with people have been like so much closer than a lot of relationships I've developed in theater because with theater, a lot of the time you audition for a play, you get into the play, you spend like a couple months with these people and then you're not hanging out anymore. And it's like, oh, well, it was nice seeing those people. Maybe I'll be in a play with them again someday. But with comedy, you can get a team of people that you really gel with who become really close friends and you get to keep creating together and you don't have to get anyone's permission to get cast to like work together again uh so that's like part of it um another thing i've been thinking about is like do people like theater like do people like who aren't theater people genuinely like theater and like going to live theater more than like once a year uh and i've been thinking a lot about like uh what our audience is like wanting and asking for. And if someone's not asking for it, like maybe you don't need to make it <laughs> or like, uh, I, I don't know. Um, and I'm much more interested in new works uh, that come from people. Um, and like, I guess in that vein is like as a non-binary person, um, there aren't like a lot of ro roles written for me and I don't necessarily want ones that are written for me by someone else. And I find a lot of freedom and, and agency in writing roles that I want to play instead of, I guess it comes back down to asking permission, um, like asking people to like write non-binary characters into, into their sketches and like, and it's, and they don't like have to, they like don't have to know how either. Um, and the secret is they're, uh, we're just like other people. We're just people. <laughs> um, but I feel like I don't have to like ask permission to do that. And so with doing comedy and like writing sketch, I get to bring my experiences to the table without having to like ask someone to include me because I think it's bullshit, honestly, like, like don't ask because oppressive like forces often like don't um, they don't like uh, give opportunities like willingly. And I feel like that's true with like a lot of like marginalized groups is like, like fuck it and like make your own work. But then also the idea of uh, there's a band I like and um, they have a song. I don't want to waste your time on music. You don't need <laughs> with that, with that line. And like, that's been in my head too of like, am I creating something useful and maybe necessary for someone's life? Like, or even not wasteful yeah. of their time. So like, yeah, I, I'm totally on board with what, how you were saying things. Yeah. I think about that a lot. Well. It's like, uh, what is my comedy doing and how is it like different from like anything else that's out there? And I think that's why I believe and or I guess like why I make work that's absurd and like sort of confrontational and like gross in nature is because like it's the kind of work that I like to see and the kind of work that I don't think is like out there as much. Um, and that's like part of why I do what I do. And maybe people like it and maybe people don't and maybe people hate it and I'm making garbage. I don't know. <laughs> Are you perfectly OK with a show not having laughter? When you do, you know, the more avant garde stuff like instead of like are you okay with whatever reaction comes from oh god, that, no. that material <laughs> no oh god no no i would be like 
I bombed. I fucking bombed. Because, like, uh, I'm, I'm making comedy through an avant-garde lens, but I'm still making comedy. And comedy exists to make people laugh, yeah. and that's always my number one. Like, I happen to do it with an avant-garde uh, framework, but I'm not, like, going in to make performance art. I'm there to make people laugh. And so if people don't laugh, then, like, I have not done my job. <laughs> yeah, I, I've... Uh... You know, I know a couple of people that are like, you know, whatever reaction is good. Yeah. I'll, I'll take whatever reaction. I was it's like, no, lie. no, laughter. <laughs> it's not true. Like, that's, I disagree with you. It's laughter. Yeah. I want laughter. Maybe an awe, right. but I and want also, laughter. Oh, God, I don't want awes. Like, I want like, uh, like, ew, and, la- and laughter. But I guess that's different. But, <laughs> okay. but, but yeah, yeah, I want yeah. to laugh. I think a lot of the stuff oh, I write is nice. awe. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Very sweet. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. It was so nice getting to chat with you. Thank you so yeah. much. Sarah will be seen next as Tragic Girl will be performed at Sketch Festival on Friday, September 6th in the 830 block along with the Salty Bees from Atlanta, Georgia. Sketchfest Seattle takes place at Unexpected Productions, and more information can be found at sketchfest.org, including tickets. Also, check out thepocket.org for more about the Pocket Theater, which seems like the cool place for comedy in Seattle. My first sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com, Follow Philly Sketchfest on Instagram at Philly Sketchfest. The music on this episode is by the band Nono, which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like my first sketch on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Go see some comedy. <laughs>